actually my blessing that you would come here. Not that I would be here, but that you would be here because you and my family are the anchors that even when you're in trial, you're in a bubble. You're in a tunnel and nothing exists really except what you're doing. You live it, you eat it, you breathe it. You've got no time to do anything else. It's a 100% focus. My emails went from 7 to 1,898 before I could really address them. I mean, it just really changes your, your, your perspective. But the weekend is a wonderful time where you get to come back and you see your marvelous wife, your great children, your siblings, my mom, and, and so many other friends and loved ones. And then I get to come here on Sunday morning. So this is an anchor for me. And I thank you that you're here uh, this morning. I will tell you just briefly before we get into the lesson that uh, Dr. Bob and I in this trial put on a juror, put a, let a juror get on this case that normally no plaintiff's lawyer in their right mind would let on a case. This is a fellow who's a retired DPS officer, who's a deacon at one of the big Baptist churches there, who, as he was described to me, would write you up for a ticket doing 72 in a 70 zone. And if you said, but I was only doing 72, would say, so you admit you're speeding. (laughs) And we put him on there because we're absolutely convinced we're right, and we view him and others like him a godsend who will just say... You got to tell the truth and you got to take responsibility for your actions, which is all we're trying to see done as part of justice. So your prayers make a world of difference. And all we can do is work real hard and pray in our world, just like you and whatever your world is, whatever the trials are in your life. You work real hard praying that God would bless what's being done for the good of his kingdom. And at that point, we're through, aren't we? So that's what we're about there, but that's not what we're about here, except in a different form. Here, we're going through the New Testament. And it's really a thrill for me to get to teach it on a level that's really digging down deep. And again, my commitment to you is to offer you something that you've not had before each week that you come in here. And so we begin this morning by doing that. We've kind of compared the three synoptic Gospels to three different portraits of Jesus. The same man, but each one a different portrait. So just as Rembrandt did three portraits of himself, so we can find three different portraits of Jesus in the Gospels. Actually, Rembrandt did like eight billion portraits of himself. It seemed to be his favorite thing to paint. But... Not saying it's a bad thing, he didn't have a camera, and maybe he just wanted to see how he aged. But he also, these are three portraits that Rembrandt did of Jesus that I've put up there, just to show different ways he tried to gather the face of Jesus and the expression of Jesus. We have that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Three different portrayals of Jesus. And Mark gives us a very Roman view of Jesus. Mark uh, writes with Latin Roman time signatures. Mark writes uh, uh, with explanations that would make sense to a Roman or to a Gentile that has no real Jewish background. But not so Matthew. Matthew wrote with a very distinctive Jewish view. It's fairly apparent, reading Matthew, that Matthew's writing to people who are Jewish 
And if they're not Jewish in their practice and Jewish in their, their understanding and their heritage, they're at least close enough to it to appreciate uh, the, the Jewish flavor that Matthew gives. And we used one example last week. I showed how when Mark talked about Jesus being confronted by the Pharisees because Jesus' apostles would not wash their hands before they ate, when Mark talked about that, Mark explained that that's a Jewish tradition and the Jews always wash their hands before they eat. Matthew doesn't have any need to explain that Jewish tradition. He's writing to people who understand it. Another example of that that we can give you this week. Look at Mark fourteen twelve. On the first day of unleavened bread, <clears throat> when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Well, now, if you're a Gentile you or a Roman who doesn't have familiarity with Jewish customs, you might not know that on the first day of unleavened bread, it's the day that they sacrificed the Passover lamb. If you read it in Matthew, Matthew doesn't have to add that detail. That parenthetical, that parentheses, that... Matthew just says, now on the first day of unleavened bread... The disciples came to Jesus and said, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? You see the difference there? Mark inserts information that Matthew doesn't have. Now this is important and it's going to grow in importance because we're working ourselves toward why are there three synoptic gospels that in some ways are identical and in some ways have differences. What gives? Because our tendency is always to think of the New Testament as a book, which it is, but it originally started out as a collection of books. And so you've got the Gospel of Mark being used in certain places, and you've got the Gospel of Matthew being used in other places. And each is written with a distinctive appeal to where it was and its purpose. We've got them all in our book, and they serve a great purpose to us all together because we get a fuller picture of Jesus and a fuller picture of his message. But it helps us to understand each one distinctively if we understand the purpose behind what it, its writing. As Pastor Fleming was talking about as a soldier, you've got to know your purpose. The same thing here as a student. We need to know the purpose of these soldiers so we can better understand how they were on mission. So we can do that. Here's another example. Mark says, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath starts sundown on Friday. So before that, you're getting ready for the Sabbath. You've got the day of preparation means Friday. Before the Sabbath, which begins at sundown. Remember the Jewish day in a sense, starts at night. Because Genesis says there was evening and there was morning the first day. So for the Jews, the day starts in the evening. So the Sabbath day starts Friday at sundown and goes till Saturday at sundown. So the day of preparation is going to be the day that precedes the Sabbath. And that's got to be explained when Mark's writing to people with a Roman view. But Matthew doesn't need to say that. So Matthew will just say, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. 
He assumes everybody knows what the day of preparation is. So these are the things that we talk about when we're referencing the Jewishness of Matthew's gospel. It's a gospel that we have in Greek, but it's a gospel that's very Jewish in its flavor. Last week we began this study and we talked about a couple of different things. We talked about how Matthew makes play on words that you really only get if you know the Hebrew word behind what he was writing. And if you've got a copy of the lesson that we're continuing to work from, the written lesson, you can go back and review those if you, if you so desire. We also last week hopscotched a little bit in the written lesson and looked at Matthew's use of the Old Testament. And we talked about how Matthew sometimes directly quotes the Old Testament, but oftentimes he makes these elusive quotes where he he uses language out of the Old Testament, but he'll change it. It's as if he's, he's making an extra point by making a change. Or he's folding it into his reasoning in such a way that it brings out a different flavor. And we talked about that last week, so we won't re-go through that this week except to say it's there. This week, we're going to look at some more ways Matthew is a Jewish gospel. We're going to start out with Matthew's Hebrew language. First, Matthew uses Hebrew idioms. Idioms. Now, if you don't know what an idiom is, that doesn't make you an idiot. It means that we just need to make sure we do. An idiom is an expression that has a meaning, but the particular meaning is not really its literal meaning. So you've got an expression that means something culturally to us beyond what it means literally. Now, if you're not understanding this, then I want you to roll up your sleeves and let's get to work. Now, when I say roll up your sleeves and let's get to work, I don't literally mean roll up your sleeves. That's an idiom. It's an expression. It means let's get after it. If I talk about someone who has money to burn, we don't mean that they're out with matches lighting their money. It means they've got lots of money that's not really needed for anything. I got to tell you, Thursday, I had a witness on the stand. And we boxed him in on his story. Now, when I say I boxed him in, I don't mean I was hitting him. I don't mean that I had built a box, a real box around him. I had built an argumentative box around him, but not a physical box. These are idioms. If I tell you that I'm playing racquetball with Louis Miori and the score is seven up, well, that doesn't mean we're drinking soda. It means it's seven to seven. These are idioms that you understand if you're in our culture. But I dare say if you come to America and you don't really speak the cultural language, And someone comes in and says, hey, I've got money to burn. It must be really shocking for someone who's just literally translating that in their brain. Oh, these crazy Americans. No wonder their economy's in trouble. They're burning their dollars. 
Matthew uses Hebrew idioms. He uses Hebrew expressions that you don't really get unless you understand what the Hebrew expression means. Because they don't really, if you take a literal translation, you're not really going to understand what he's saying. So I want to give you some of those. And I've put four of them in here, actually two from Matthew, with two Proverbs thrown in to help us understand it. So you all ready? Now, I've got to warn you. This may frustrate you a little bit. This may make you say, all right, well, this isn't fair. I mean, how am I going to get that? I'm reading English, of Greek, of Hebrew. How am I supposed to get that? What's God done to me here? Don't get frustrated. Get excited. First of all, there is no message about the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it takes to be made right with God that's this difficult to understand in the Bible. That is so simple a child can follow it. But these are layers and depths of study that are open to us that we can enjoy. And this is why you can be 150 and still find things in the Bible you didn't know and appreciate. So don't get discouraged over it. Get excited. With that, let's look at Matthew 6, 22 through 23. Here's what we have. Matthew 6. Ah, there we go. Thank you. Uh-huh. Here it is. Starts there. The eye. Do you see the eye? The eye is the lamp of the whole body, of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now, you just look at that. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now, you're looking at that. You may think, well, that makes sense to me. The eye is the lamp of the body. What I see is going to affect what goes into my brain. And if my eyes are healthy, if I'm looking at good things, then it's going to be healthy for my brain and healthy for my body. And that's certainly true. And, and that's a very godly point, And that's a point carried throughout Scripture. But it's not really what Jesus is saying here. Let's look at this in the flow of the whole chapter. Let's go back to this Elmo. It starts out, if we can put this up on the screen so we can all see it. One, two, it's on that side. Okay, so uh, if we, oh, that's not going to work for me. Ah, you sly dogs in the booth. Okay, fasting. Jesus says, if you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, but anoint your head and wash your face. You're fasting for your father in secret. Don't be fasting for appearances with others. Then he says, look at this, 
Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. You lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Now that's the passage right before this talk about the eye being the lamp of the body. And if your eye's a good eye, then your body's a good body. If your eye's a bad eye, then it's not. So you've got treasures in heaven. Let's make sure we got this all here. So we've got, um, which is, treasures in heaven is like stewardship. It's what you do with your money. Okay? You've got a money passage. Then you've got this passage about the lamp. We'll just draw a light bulb. That'll let you all know that's the lamp. That's a light bulb. You may not know that. I might could have done that better. My mistake. You got money, you got a lamp, and then right after that lamp passage, you got this. No one can serve two masters. He's either going to hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. What do you go back to? Money. So you got money, lamp, money. Now, if you don't know the Hebrew idiom, you might be thinking, gee, Matthew just put together all these different stories and he didn't do it in too good a way. Because who stands up and says, I want to preach to you. My first point is money. My second point is lamps. My third point is money. I mean, surely a good teacher, and Jesus supposedly the best in history, would have put his points together a little bit better. So you'll find some people who say Matthew just hodgepodged together a bunch of sayings over the life of Jesus and he did not do it in a very good fashion. Au contraire. Just need to know the Hebrew idioms. Let me tell you that uh, in the Hebrew, if your eye is healthy, well, first of all, in the Greek... This word healthy, hoplos, means good, okay? And if your eye is good, that's not agathos, but it's another word for good, a healthy, it's, it's, a, it's, it's good healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is poneiros, if your eye is bad, or if your eye is evil, if you've got the evil eye, then your whole body is going to be full of darkness. Now this is a Hebrew idiom. For your eye to be good, to be healthy, means for you to be generous. For your eye to be evil, means for you to be stingy. See, this passage is talking about money, just like the passage before and after. This is a money passage. Jesus says, lay up treasures in heaven for where your treasure is. There your heart will be. Jesus says, don't be stingy. Be generous. And then Jesus ends it with, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. So be a generous person. Now you're saying, how do you know that's a Hebrew idiom? Well, we know it from a number of different writings. There are rabbinical writings from about the time of Christ that use the same type of expressions. But it's also a very biblical expression. 
I've pulled out the two Proverbs passages. Let's start with Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23, verse 6. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. And you see that little six next to stingy? That little six next to stingy is a footnote. Because in Hebrew, what it literally says is a man whose eye is evil. Ra, ayan. Evil, ra, ayan, eye. Someone who's got an evil eye. That's a man who's stingy. But instead of translating it, do not eat the bread of a man who has an evil eye, the English Standard Version wants to make sure we don't miss the point of the proverb. Don't eat the bread of a man who's stingy. Don't desire his delicacies. They will cost you more in the long run than they're ever worth. You don't just see it there. You see it in other Proverbs as well. Here's Proverbs 28, verse 22. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. That stingy man, footnote 3, is a man... In Hebrew, whose eye is evil. So, the point of that is, a man whose eye is evil hastens after wealth. A man who's stingy hastens after wealth and doesn't know that poverty will come upon him. Stinginess. Now, that's what Matthew's got in this passage from Jesus. Jesus is using it the same way. So, Jesus says... The eye is the lamp of the body, which is true. If your eye is good, if you're generous, if you're a generous person, it's going to affect all of you. Your whole body's going to shine. You're going to be someone that brings light into the world. You're going to bring someone who brings blessing into the world. If you're generous with what you have, and that's not simply money. There are a lot of people who don't have much money who are incredibly generous with what they have. With their time, with their energy, with their emotions, with their attentiveness. Jesus talks about the woman who is more generous than all of the big dollar givers because she gave out of her poverty two widow's mites. So this doesn't mean if you've got to have money to be light. This means you need to be generous. It's talking about a spiritual state of how you deal with all of your physical blessings. So if you're generous with what you've got, you'll be a light that shines out in the world. But if you've got an evil eye, if you're stingy, then your whole body is going to be full of darkness. If the light in you is darkness, how great's the darkness? You're supposed to be a light, Jesus says in this sermon, set on a hill. To shine. But if you're stingy with what you've got, you're not. You are not a source of light and a source of blessing and a source of illumination for anyone. You're darkness. So Matthew, by the way, this isn't the only time he uses the idiom. Matthew uses it again. Let's see if I brought this with me. I think I did. Matthew 20, verse 15. Look at uh, 20 verse 15. Let's, let's get this in the flow of the parable that Jesus is telling. This is the, well, I'll tell you the parable because it's too long to read it. 
Here's the parable. So Jesus says there's a man who's got a field and he goes out in the morning and he hires some people to come work in the field. He says, I'm going to pay you a day's wage to come work in the field. But as things are going on during the day, it looks like they're not going to get it done. So let's take it out of the field and let's put it into mowing yard. You've got a massive yard that needs to be mowed. So the guy who's got the yard to be mowed goes out and says, hey, would you come mow the yard? We've got a church picnic coming up. We got 20 acres have to be mowed. So the fellow says, yeah, I'll mow it. And the fellow says, I'll pay you a full day's wage to mow it. So the guy starts mowing. Well, about three hours into the thing, it's pretty apparent he's not going to get finished in time. So you go out and find someone else. Say, hey, if you'll come help mow and clean up the yard, I'll give you a full day's wage, even though the day's already three hours gone. Deal. Those two fellas are out there working. A little later on, you're realizing it's still not going to get done. You go find a third fella. I'll pay you a whole day's wage for just the rest of this day if you'll get out there and help clean up the yard. Deal. Then you're still not going to get done. You get a fourth fella. I'll pay you a whole day's wage. Deal. At the end of the day, the four fellas line up. You give each of them the same amount. And three of them are belly aching. Time out. I did more work than that last fella. This isn't fair. It's not fair. That's the parable Jesus tells. And then Jesus says this. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now you're saying, well, what does that have to do with an I? Well, again, the... English Standard Version doesn't want you to miss what Jesus is saying, so they tell you what it is in modern language. But they give you a footnote so you don't miss what's literally there. If you were reading the King James, you would just get the footnote. Footnote is, is your eye bad because I'm good? Are you stingy just because I'm generous? Are you more worried about what you're getting than you are what I'm giving to someone else? Do you begrudge my generosity? If, if Jesus wants to forgive one person for 50 sins, but you only have 10 you need to be forgiven of, why are you begrudging that other person? Shouldn't you be rejoicing that we serve a God who is so generous that He'll not only forgive our 10, but He'll forgive their 50 Should we not be rejoicing in the generosity of our God? Now I want to tell you what what Jesus is saying here. Through these expressions, we don't want to miss the point. The point is, we worship a generous God. And if we trust Him and believe in Him and have faith in Him, we will reflect His generosity. And we will be known as a giving people. And as we are known as a giving people, our light, which is His light, will shine and illuminate the world around us. But those are things we only get if we follow Matthew's Hebrew idioms. So, um, back to the PowerPoint for a moment. Idioms. Matthew's got them. Next thing we get out of the Hebrew, and I reference this like for 30 seconds in the 
introductory class we had on Matthew, but it's worth looking at a little bit more, is the gematria that's involved. The gematria. Gematria is taking Hebrew or other languages as well, letters that have a number value and using the math. Sargon, the great Assyrian emperor, did this. He took the numerical value of his name and built a city where the walls were the exact measurement of what his name was numerically. Um, uh, it's it's kind of cool. So Matthew does the same thing. And if we don't understand what he's doing here, not only do we miss his message, but we run the risk of thinking that, that Matthew's an idiot. Because, oh, why'd he do that? He's an idiot. No, he's not an idiot. This is brilliant scripture. Through Matthew, by the hand of God. We just got to understand it. Look at this genealogy. Matthew begins with this passage. The book of the Genesis or the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he starts out, Abraham's the father of Isaac, Isaac, father of Jacob, Jacob, father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, father of Perez. By the way, if you don't know the Greek word for father, you do by the time you're through translating the start of Genesis. I mean, of uh, Matthew. Okay, the father of Hezron, the father of Ram, the father of Amenadab, the father of Nashon, the father of Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. He mentions Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Oh, Obed, by Ruth. She was, she was like a foreigner. She's a Moabite. Obed, the father of... Je why... Okay, I don't know that I even put this in the lesson, but this is really good. This is worth a pause for a moment. He puts this in there because Matthew's writing to Jews who still knew who Jesus was on earth. Jesus? <laughs> yeah, you heard about him, didn't you? She got pregnant before she got married. Questionable lineage, that Jesus boy. Don't think automatically that all the Jews believed in the virgin birth. Especially non-believing Christians. So they're out there and, and, and the rumor about Jesus was, yeah, he's the illegitimate child. Mary's the mother. Don't know for sure Joseph's the father. That's Jesus. Questionable lineage. Jews might be saying, how could the Messiah ever come from someone of questionable lineage? And so Matthew takes care of that in the first few verses and says, it doesn't matter who it is. If it's the son of David, you got lineage questions going all the way back. So until he gets to the virgin birth, he before he explains the virgin birth, he already discounts and puts aside the prejudice of people who say, well, it's, this is not even worth reading. It's impossible to think that the Messiah could ever come from anything except the most pure and pristine lineage. Time out. God works through all sorts of people. Okay? Yeah, he puts it in here. It's good stuff. Okay, but then he continues. David's the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah, father of Rehoboam, Abijah, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, the jumping guy, Joram, 
Uzziah, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amos, Josiah, Jeconiah. Then they go to Babylon. After Babylon, Jeconiah, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, Abiud, Eliakim, uh, Azor, Zadok, Ahim, Eliud, Eliezer, Matan, 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 Yaakov, Yosef, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who's called the Christ. Now look what he says. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14. Now, you're going to have someone like James Hammond who sits right down here. Where are you today? There he is. James is going to, he's the kind of guy who's going to pull out his Old Testament and put it on a spreadsheet. And he's going to pull each one of those out. And then he's going to come up to me after class one day and say, this looks to me like an error. There weren't 14 generations. There were 17 in this stretch. Matthew left out three kings that we know about in the Old Testament. Is this an error? No, it's not, James. He has not done that to me yet, but he will. He's pulled out every genealogy there is in the Bible, and we've discussed them at some point in time over the last seven or plus years. Here's what is at work here. It's gematria. There's a point that Matthew's making. He's not worried about us double-checking his genealogy to make sure he didn't leave anything out. He left three out on purpose because he wanted to cite 14 generations. You don't miss the point. It's obvious the descendancy. You haven't missed something in there, but 14 is very important to him. If you were reading your Hebrew, some of you learned your Hebrew alphabet, and you learned that Aleph is the first letter. Whoops, hold on. Aleph, Beit, Gimel. Y'all remember your next? Dalit. Hey. Here, we just did it that way. Hey. Vav which uh, would be a German spelled W-A-W, if you do the German V. But Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, Hey, Vav. Aleph is one. Beit is two. Gimel is three. Dalit is four. Hey is five. Vav is six. You know how to spell David in Hebrew? David. It's just got consonants. They don't have vowels to mess you up. It makes spelling so much easier. That I before E, just get rid of both of them. <laughs> David, D, V, D. That's David. What's the value of a D? What's the value of a V? What's the value of a D? David in Gematria is 14. What Matthew's saying here is he's saying how Jesus is the ultimate descendant of David. He is David to the third power. He is the son of David. This whole passage started out with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David. 
David is the one. And you read through Matthew and look at all the times that you read about David. David is the one who Jesus quotes and says, If the son of David is in fact the son of David, how can he also be the Messiah? Because David said to him, My Lord. How could David call him my Lord if he's his son? The son of David is an important theme in Matthew. And so this is just another layer of it. You just don't get that unless you're reading it with the Hebrew behind it. It's that Hebrew language. Next, um, there's a Hebrew storyline and structure in Matthew. I've, instead of putting all of the verses out, I've put it into a PowerPoint because there's too much for us to get through. But I've just made a few selections. And you might be sitting there, and some scholars will say exactly what I'm saying here. Other scholars will say things like, eh, that's probably coincidence. Um, Interesting, if you read the Jewish annotated New Testament, which is written by Jews for Jews, so that they can better understand the New Testament. They pick up on this. So you can look at it and say, ah, it's a coincidence, that's fine. I don't see it as a coincidence. It's just more of Matthew's overlay that's very Jewish. Let me show you what I'm talking about. I'm going to compare from, from the Gospel of Matthew, look at what Matthew has to say about Jesus and about Moses. So that should not be Matthew in the first column. That should be Jesus. But this is, the reason I did it, Matthew, in my brain is because this is what Matthew says about Jesus. And the Moses stuff is stuff we're getting from the Old Testament. So here's how Matthew compares Jesus or tracks ideas of Moses in his, con, in his uh, uh, gospel about Jesus. Uh, if you're not with me now, you may be after I show you a couple. So hang on. First of all, Moses. Moses was a prophet leader. He was a leader of the people who was a prophet. He was called out of Egypt to take people to the promised land. Okay? We all know that story, right? Jesus is a prophet leader who's called out of Egypt to take people to the kingdom of heaven. The ultimate promised land. And that's in Matthew 2, 6. Moses. Moses survives a mass murder of male children by the king, Pharaoh. And through the hand of God is protected to see to the purpose for which he was made. Jesus survives a mass murder of male children by the king, Herod, instead of Pharaoh. But is protected by the hand of God, as God tells Joseph, take the child and go to Egypt. Next, Moses. Moses returns to Egypt after, quote, all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Moses had killed an Egyptian. Moses' life was forfeit. Moses flees into Midian. Moses flees into the wilderness. God sends Moses back, quote, after all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Matthew charts that same language when Jesus is returned to Nazareth 
As the angel tells Joseph, you can go back home now. Those who thought the chi- sought the child's life are dead. And it's got child's inserted instead of your life or dead. Moses. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the law from God. And he receives it. Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, unlike the other Gospels, Jesus always goes up on the mountain when he gives the law and he explains the law. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. For Matthew, Mark doesn't bother inserting that each time. But for Matthew, it's important that you realize as Jesus goes up not only to give the law, but to explain the law. When Jesus is up there saying, you have heard it read that you shall not commit murder, but I tell you, you shall not even hate. When Jesus is dispensing the law, he's dispensing not only law that was given unto Moses on Mount Sinai, but further law, an explanation of the law, an understanding of the law. And he goes up on the mountain to do it. Moses. Moses not only goes up on the mountain to receive the law from God, but he has that law produced in what? Five books. The five books of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? Guess how many times Matthew goes up on the mountain to produce the law? Or Jesus does in Matthew. Five times. Matthew 5, 1, whoops, this could get old. 14, 3, sorry. 15, 29, 24, 3, and 28, 16. There are five times where Jesus makes it a point. So, by the same token, just as Moses has these five books of the law, the Pentateuch, they're called, Penta being five, or the Torah, the, the law, just as Moses has five books of the law, So Jesus not only goes up to the mountain to explain and give the law, but, ah, there we go, he has five specific discourses. There are five laid out sermons, if you will, that Jesus gives, and at each one it ends with, and when he had finished, which is the same language that has at the end of Moses' dispensation of the law. Charts the same language. When Moses is through giving the law, it says, and when he had finished, that same language is used by Matthew all five times that Jesus has this discourse. Moses fasted 40 days and nights. Jesus. Matthew is the one who tells us about him fasting 40 days and nights. Moses. Now, there, there, look at the difference here. Because when you see all of the similarities lining up, then when you see a distinction, it makes the distinction jump out. Moses, you remember the story? He's already struck the rock once to get water. They need water again. God says, speak to the rock. What does Moses do? He strikes it. Moses failed that temptation in the wilderness. He's in the wilderness, he's tempted, and instead of doing what he's told, he does otherwise. Jesus overcomes his temptations in the wilderness. Now, let's take it a step further. Moses is told, because you failed in your temptation here, 
You don't get to take the people into the promised land. You just lead them up to it. And he does. He leads them to Mount Nebo and he stays on Mount Nebo. And there he dies. Able to watch them go into the promised land but not able to go with them. So Moses dies before leading people into the promised land. Now here's the interesting thing. Jesus passed his temptations. He was without sin. Jesus also dies before leading people into the kingdom. Just like Moses. But, unlike Moses, Jesus, who passed his temptations, who lived the perfect life, rose from the dead to lead people into the kingdom of heaven. Moses, a good man. Jesus, the Son of God. So there's Hebrew storyline. There's Hebrew structure. We got time. I'll add just one more real quick. We'll do it fast. The Hebrew mission. Matthew says, let's look, we're going to compare Matthew 4 with Matthew 12, but we should start out with Matthew 1. I should have added it to the PowerPoint. Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus is important not only because he's the son of David, but he's something else too. What is he? He's the son of Abraham. And that's important to Matthew. Because Abraham is the one of whom the promise was made in in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land that I'll show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. So you will be a blessing. Abraham was blessed so that Abraham would be a blessing. Israel was blessed. Not just because God had some favored nation. It wasn't simply God thought, I like this ethnic group more than I like that ethnic group. We know such is not the heart of God. He loves all people the same, of all races, of all ethnic groups, of all nations. The reason Israel was chosen was to be a blessing to other people. Abraham had the blessing of God so that Abraham, through Abraham, others would be blessed. The blessing for all people is the blessing found by the seed of Abraham. Hence, Matthew makes it a point. Jesus is not only son of David, but he is son of Abraham. And he, Matthew makes the point that as Jesus begins his ministry, he does it so that the blessing to the son of Abraham from Isaiah might be fulfilled. Look, Jesus leaves Nazareth. He lives in Capernaum by the sea, the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And here's the passage out of Isaiah. The land of Zebulun, the light of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them a light has dawned. The point Matthew's making is that through Jesus, the light of the world has come. In Abraham and through his offspring has come the light for all humanity. Abraham was blessed so that he could be a blessing by his offspring, illuminating the way to God and providing the way to God for all of of mankind. That's who Jesus is. That's the gospel. That's the good news. 
Nobody need live in darkness with a God of light above us and without, around us and within us. We can instead open up our hearts and let that light shine into our darkness. Because that's the opportunity we have in the Messiah, in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, died and resurrected to take us to the kingdom of heaven. And that's a flavor of Matthew's gospel that you do not get unless you see it for the Jewish flavor it has. So I hope that's a blessing. In light of that, let's look at the points for home. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If you're generous with what God has given you, if you're generous with your time, if you're generous with your attention, if you're generous with your energy, if you're generous with your resources, it not only will transform who you are, but it will transform the way God uses you to shed his light in the world. Let's be full of light and love. Point for home number two. Jesus said to them, follow me. Can you imagine if Moses had gone back to Egypt? Let my people go. Finally, after ten plagues, Pharaoh says, ah, get out, leave. Moses says, okay, let's go. And people say, I ain't going. I'm going, I'm going that way. I'm going west. I'm going to America. I mean, no. Follow to the promised land, Moses. His job was to lead. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus all the way home. All the way home. There'll come a day where I don't have the energy. There'll come a day where I don't have the voice. There'll come a day where I don't have the, 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 the physical strength. There'll come a day where I'll take my last breath. But I'm going to follow Jesus all the way home. Finally, people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. The son of Abraham. I want that light to shine in me. I want people to see in me not... Ooh, Mark Lanier. Mm -mm. I want him to look at me and say, there's something unusual there. There's a love and there's a light and there's, there's, there's something that is much greater than that goofball guy. There's something that's a treasure. I want to know what that is. Would you pray with me? Lord, may your light shine within us. Would you make your face first shine upon us? Be gracious to us. Give us peace. Would you bless and keep each one of us in your care? And as you bless us, Lord, may we see those blessings as our chance to take them and spread them around. May we be the dispenser of your blessings, the, the reflection of your light to a dark and hungry and needy world. As we serve in your army. In Jesus' name, amen.